to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. And we will read together this morning verses 15 through 31 as we continue in our exposition of the Gospel of John, John 14. Verses 15 through 31. Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room says, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, and you have to believe that's how he introduced himself for the rest of his life. Judas, not Iscariot. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and he will come to him, make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid." You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let us all pray. Father, we pray that in the next 45 minutes, as we consider this passage of Scripture, uh, that what we have not, you would give us, what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the most wonderful things about becoming a Christian, being converted, being born again, being united to Christ and entering into a saving relationship with Him, is the wonder in the days that follow, the weeks that follow, the months that follow for some, it's many years, maybe the rest of our Christian lives, uh, to reflect back on what exactly happened in our new birth in our conversion? What exactly took place when God saved me and 
called me and regenerated me by His Spirit. And for many Christians, maybe this is your experience, as you read the Scriptures, uh, you, you come into greater awareness, greater knowledge of what exactly took place uh, in our salvation. I know for many of us, we've heard testimony in this place of some who came to the realization maybe some many years on after they were first converted and first responded to the gospel uh, of just all that God was doing even before the foundations of the world and predestining us and calling us and setting His love on us and in the process of time regenerating us and drawing us to Himself. And as we come to a fuller knowledge of that, a fuller understanding of that, it thrills our hearts and magnifies our understanding of the grace and love of God. It's a beautiful and a wonderful thing to reflect back on our conversion, on our new birth. Now, having said that, I fear that sometimes we may think that the height of Christian experience, sort of the top of the mountain for us is to be found in reflection backwards on what Christ has done in our lives in saving us. But in this morning's message, and through our exposition of the Upper Room Discourse, in particular in John's Gospel, I want us to appreciate that God has much more for us in our Christian experience. Uh, there, there, there are higher peaks uh, yet to ascend, and, and greater views of the love and character and grace of God that are to be had for the Christian than simply reflecting back on the new birth. Uh, God has for us, He intends for us, to enter into something that we call fellowship with God, communion with God. Uh, God intends in the saving of a sinner to introduce him into a new relationship with the Godhead, that is to be experienced in terms of love and intimacy and affection and relationship. This is sometimes what we mean when we refer to our walk with God. We're talking about our actual relationship with Him, our experience with Him. And so I want to encourage us this morning that the, the, the greatest aspects of being a Christian are not to be found merely in reflecting back on what has taken place in the past, being united to Christ and being born again, but to be experienced in terms of intimacy and relationship and fellowship and communion with the living God, something that is experienced in terms of love and affection and relationship and experience. And there's a sense in which this is the theme of the Upper Room Discourse. What does it mean to actually live as a Christian in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and indeed with the Father and with the Holy Spirit? And what we'll see again and again is that it is a relationship that is experienced in terms of love and in terms of affection. We're looking this morning at verses 15 through 31. We're going to return to these same verses next week. Uh, there are two very large issues uh, that we want to open up and see in these verses, two, two uh, themes really that carry on for the rest of the Upper Room Discourse through chapters 15, 16, and 17. Uh, the first is this, and this is what we'll consider this morning, uh, the relationship of the disciples to Jesus, especially as it relates to their love for and obedience to Him. We want to consider this morning what this text has to teach us about the relationship of the disciples to Jesus, especially as it pertains to their love for and obedience to Him. And then the second subject, the second theme of these verses that we'll consider next week is maybe the major issue, and that is the sending of the Holy Spirit to the believer. 
a theme that is prevalent in, in the upper room. So that'll be next week's time. So this morning, we're uh, caught up primarily with verses 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, of verse 21, verse 23, and verse 24, as we consider what it means to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to live in relationship with Him in that context. Uh, let me give, there are three main headings this morning that I'll give to you in a moment, but I want to give sort of a brief preface to our consideration of these verses, just a few opening observations to keep in our minds uh, as we seek to be faithful interpreters of this particular passage. So these are just three hopefully helpful encouragements to keep in mind as we try to interpret this passage uh, faithfully in the way I think uh, John and indeed the Holy Spirit would have us understand this passage. So keep in mind, first of all, that in salvation, God always initiates the relationship with us. In our salvation, the new birth, conversion, regeneration, being united to Christ, in our salvation, God is always the initiator. Uh, this, this is the clear testimony of Scripture again and again and again. Maybe the most well-known verse is Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you don't have to go outside the writings of the Apostle John. This theme is opened up again and again in John's epistles, and it's summarized maybe in 1 John uh, 4.19, very simple statement, uh, we love Him because He first loved us. God initiates the relationship with the believer, and we've seen this many times in John's gospel already. John 6, verse 44, 45, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's not talking primarily about love, but it is saying there is no relationship that exists between God and a redeemed sinner unless God makes the first move and initiates the relationship and indeed draws the sinner to Himself. So remember, God is always the initiator in salvation. And John is not teaching anything different here in these verses. Second thing to remember about the upper room, in the upper room generally, the upper room discourse, is, is not a strictly linear passage. It's a cyclical passage. Uh, Jesus uh, cycles through various themes, and then He moves ahead, and He circles back around to other themes, and doesn't, doesn't read in a strictly logical, linear fashion. A number of topics are canvassed. He's interacting, dialoguing with His disciples. Oftentimes, questions from the disciples prompt the next subject. It's not like, say, the Sermon on the Mount, where, where there's a very strict and tight connection between the various thoughts that Jesus is bringing forward. That's a pure monologue. Uh, but the upper room is a dialogue with the disciples, and it's, it's cyclical, and there's not meant to always be the most precise connection in terms of a logical order in the passage. And then the third and final thing to remember as we interpret these verses, and this is maybe the most important to help us in really understanding uh, what Jesus is communicating to His disciples, we must remember that in this passage, unlike almost every other passage in John thus far, in this passage, Jesus is talking specifically and indeed exclusively to believers. So Jesus is not witnessing among the crowds. He doesn't have a mixed group of unbelievers and believers. Jesus is talking to those who already have faith in Him, who already love Him, and indeed are devoted to Him, which means this passage is about discipleship. Uh, it's about fellowship with God, not simply about the new birth and the need to be born again. These men have been born again. And now Jesus is talking to them about relationship with the Godhead. So now consider with me as we seek to open up these verses, three main headings this morning. 
Now, the first heading is this. We'll consider the relationship between faith and love. The relationship between faith and love. Secondly, the relationship between love and obedience. And then thirdly, the relationship between obedience and fellowship with God. The relationship between faith and love, the relationship between love and obedience, and thirdly, the relationship between obedience and fellowship with God. So consider with me first the relationship between faith and love. If you look with me again at verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Believe it or not, this is the first time in the entire gospel that Jesus introduces the idea of His disciples loving Him. This is the first time this has come up in the entire gospel. They've heard a lot about following Jesus. They've heard a lot about believing in Jesus. But this is the first time He introduces the idea of loving Him. And over the next three chapters, this theme of the disciples' love for Jesus is going to get major coverage. Now, I want us to back away from this idea of love for a second and ask the question, what is faith? Let's start with faith, and then we'll we'll move to love. What is faith according to the Bible? Uh, we, We urge, plead with men and women to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we asking them to do? Well, we're asking them to have faith in Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith? And, and, and theologians and expositors of the Bible have arrived at, at two very large issues that are present in the Bible's view of faith. First of all, there is the mental assent or mental agreement with the facts of the gospel message. These facts are true, that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the longed-for Messiah, uh, that He is in fact the Son of God. Uh, that He was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and came incarnate in flesh, and that He went to the cross, like historically, actually, not figuratively, but He went to the cross and He died, in some sense, bearing the sins of all God's people, that they might be saved through the work of atonement He accomplished on the cross. And it is to believe also that Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead, came out of the tomb was seen by His disciples, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, continually makes intercessions for His people, and will come again bodily to judge the living and the dead. And faith says, I see those facts and I agree with them. Those are true statements. I believe these things to have actually taken place in history. I believe them to be true. That's the first aspect of faith, mental agreement to the facts of the gospel, and it is not enough to save a person. You can believe all of that and not be an actual believer. So there's this second aspect of faith, okay? And that is actually entrusting oneself to Jesus as a Savior for sinners and as Lord of our lives. It's not enough to say this is all true. We have to stake our lives on it, that that I am, am depending upon the veracity and truth of these things. I am entrusting myself to Jesus to be a Savior for my sins, and I believe that if I come to Him and repent to Him and believe on Him, He will save me and give me the gift of eternal life. And I give myself to Him, devote myself to Him as a follower of Him for all of my days. So sort of entrusting oneself to Jesus, not just believing the facts to be true, but trusting those facts and that Savior, that one behind those facts to save us from our sins 
and to give us eternal life. See those two ideas. I, I think, um, this isn't exactly accurate, but this is captured. Sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed together, and sometimes we recite Heidelberg Catechism Question 1. In the Apostles' Creed, I think we're more getting at agreement with the facts. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe these things to be true historically. But, but Heidelberg 1 is much more experiential. Uh, 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 what is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all of my sins. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father who is in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. You hear the experiential trust present in that answer. So it's mental assent, it's never less than that, but also trust in Christ to save us from our sins. Now, how does John talk about this piece over here, this trust? We've talked about this before. He does it in terms of the verbs he uses to describe faith. So faith in John's gospel is described in various ways as having Jesus, uh, tasting Jesus, seeing Jesus, eating Jesus, drinking Jesus, coming to Jesus, following Jesus. So a text like John 6 and verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life likens himself to bread that must be had and enjoyed. I am the bread of life. Whoever follows me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. The idea of enjoying Jesus like a loaf of bread that satisfies the soul such that we will never hunger and thirst again. John 7, verse 37, Jesus stood up on the last and great day of the feast and he cried out, what did he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink being satisfied in Jesus, delighting in Jesus, having Him like food and drink, eating Him, drinking Him, experiencing Him, and finding Him to be satisfactory, finding Him to be enjoyable, finding Him to be delightful. I think we can even say pleasurable. Some people get very uncomfortable with, with that sort of language, but that's the language that John uses. And I think now, to get back to the idea of love, He's expanding on this idea of faith to say it includes this idea of loving Jesus. Uh, faith includes love for Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. And none of the disciples there think, well, hold on now. You've been talking about believing and following. We're on board with it. What do you mean about love now? No, he's just continuing with this theme of faith. It includes this idea of love for the Lord Jesus. Agreement with the facts is not enough. There must be love for Christ. And what is love for Jesus? When Jesus says, if you love me, what does he have in mind? To love Jesus is to treasure Jesus, to cherish Jesus, to want Jesus, to prefer Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to have him and to enjoy him and to experience him. That's what love means. The word that's used is agape. That's the noun form. Some churches are called agape Baptist church. That's the word, love, agape. The verb form is agapao. The word occurs some 60 times or so in the Gospel of John. That's why John is often referred to as the apostle of love. It occurs more in John's Gospel than any other Gospel. 
Now, what does that word mean? How is it used? I'm saying it's used in terms of preferring, wanting, tasting, enjoying, experiencing pleasure in the object of, of love. And again, some people step away from that and say, well, no, that's really what Jesus is after. Is he talking about pleasure, enjoyment of Christ and of God? So consider how this word is used, say, in John 3, verse 19. In John 3, 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light. What does that mean? They preferred darkness. They wanted darkness. They tasted darkness, and it tasted good. They enjoyed darkness, and they developed a preference for darkness rather than light. The, 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 the affection and the joy and the satisfaction and delight that was directed toward darkness ought to have been directed toward light. But rather, the people in the world who Jesus comes to save, they loved darkness, preferred darkness rather than light. The word's used in the exact same way in John 12, verse 43. Why didn't the Jews come to believe in Jesus? Because they loved the glory that comes from God, excuse me, loves the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In those two texts, love is clearly a reference to preference for something, enjoyment for something other than God. And I contend, why shouldn't it be used in the same way in this passage? To love Jesus is to want Him, to enjoy Him to delight in Him and to be satisfied in Him. It is to experience joy and pleasure in His presence and in the context of relationship with Him. And conversely, the essence of sin is enjoying or preferring something more than Jesus. Sin is a matter of misplaced affection. I want this thing. I find satisfaction in this thing, delight in this thing, above satisfaction and delight and pleasure in God. Faith in Jesus is not a transactional sort of exchange. I sign up for the program. I agree these things happened historically. I can do what's said in the Sermon on the Mount and other passages like it. I'm going to church. I enjoy that. That sounds good. And I will do those things because I believe the facts to be true. Faith is way more than that. It's not less than agreement to the facts, but it's more than that. Faith is having actual love for Christ and wanting Him, and experiencing Him in terms of intimacy and affection and relationship with Him. That's what Jesus is after when He says, believe in Me, come to Me, partake of Me, drink Me, eat Me, have Me. He's talking about love. So what is the relationship between faith and love? I'm arguing that love is a constitutive part of faith. There's no such thing as true, genuine, saving faith that doesn't, doesn't uh, 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 produce love for the Savior. I don't use this language often because I think it can be misunderstood, okay? But, but I'll use it here with that qualification. It could be misunderstood. But I feel led to ask the question, is there someone here, uh, you, you may have thought for many years uh, that, that I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe the gospel, I've been coming to church for all these years now, and, and, and I'm, I'm in. I'm a believer. But you might be saying to yourself at this point in the message, I'm not sure 
what the preacher is talking about this morning about love for Jesus, I've never really thought of it that way. Now, that seems sort of unfamiliar to me, to experience joy in relationship with Jesus, having Him and loving Him and experiencing an intimate relationship with Him. I don't really know anything about that. Now, now listen, I am arguing that, that that sort of love, that sort of relationship is part of the essence of saving faith itself. And so, so if that's you, it might be time for some self-searching and some introspection. And if that is you, I would like to talk to you after the service. Um, you can email me if you don't want to come after the service and talk to me, alexdeprima at emmanuelws.com. But if you don't come, and that still fits you, let me say this. If you don't feel in your heart or know in your heart actual love for the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you to read through the Gospel of John. Study Jesus in the Gospel of John and go to God and say, God, I want to love Jesus. I want to, I'm not sure I know what that means. I'm not sure I know what that looks like, but would you teach me as I consider your word, I want to love the Lord Jesus. And I promise you, he will do it for you. He will implant in you the love of God and give to you through faith, love for the Lord Jesus. What is the relationship between faith and love? Love is a part of saving faith. Now consider with me secondly the relationship between love and obedience. We've seen the relationship between faith and love, now the relationship between love and obedience. Look with me again at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus answered him, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And what is the relationship, according to these passages, between our love for Jesus and our obedience to his commandments? Verse 15, 21, and 23, what is the relationship between our love for Jesus and our obedience to him? Well, let's start with something very obvious, okay? Love is not obedience. Love is not obedience. According to these verses, obedience is not the essence of love. It's not the source of love. Obedience is the product or result of love. Love, as we said a moment ago, is wanting Jesus, preferring Jesus, treasuring Jesus. Love is seeing and savoring Jesus and being drawn to Jesus. Love is adoring Him and worshiping Him for the inherent beauty of His perfections. That is the essence of love. Love is tasting. Love is delighting. And obedience is the product of love for Jesus. Love is not doing. Love is expressed in doing. But never make the mistake of thinking that love is obedience. Uh, you, you cannot just do and conform and discipline yourself and walk the straight line and call that loving Jesus. Legalism will not fit into this text. That if I just, if I just do, if I just perform, if I just obey, I've loved Christ. That is not what this passage is teaching. Listen, what, what would it mean uh, for a husband to 
serve his wife, to do things for his wife, but not to delight in his wife. You have all the service, all the doing, all the, all the service, but no delight in affection. Whatever you may call that, it's not love. You could imagine a husband who, who purchases a very expensive uh, arrangement of flowers, surprises his wife, he brings them home and buys her her favorite perfume or something like that. He comes home, he gives these gifts to her, and he says, I'm making dinner tonight. And he makes dinner for the family, and it's the wife's favorite meal. And then he takes the kids, he does bath time and tucks them in, puts them to bed. And then at the end of the night, he finally is alone with his wife. They sit down on the couch together. He turns to her and he says, I've done my job. That's how this works. I do my job. I do things for you. We stay married. I'm going to bed. That's not love. Obedience is not love. And you could imagine a different scenario where he does all those same things, and then he sits down at the end of the evening on the couch with his wife, and he says, darling, I want you to know I did these things because I love you, and I cherish you, and treasure you, and I, I want you to feel honored and appreciated by these things that I've done. That, that's why I've done these things. And, and honey, I enjoy you more in the context of serving you and making you happy. And your smile, your joy is my joy. Well, now that's something very different. Now we've arrived at something approximating love. And we can see in there the connection between our deeds and our obedience and our love for Christ. Now, as long as we have this clear that love is not obedience, it's not obedience, I think we can pretty easily surmise what Jesus is telling us here. Uh, the relationship between love and obedience is this. Our love for Christ produces obedience to His commands. And what's more, our love for Christ is expressed by obedience to His commands. So love for Christ produces obedience to the commands. It is expressed by obedience to His commands. So a few implications here now. Uh, first of all, I think it's legitimate in light of these verses uh, to make the following statement. Obedience to Christ is a test of genuine love for Christ. Obedience to Christ is a genuine test of love for Christ. So, I don't think this is the main reason Jesus made this statement to His disciples. He knows these disciples love Him. I think it's, it's, a, it's a larger idea that we'll consider in a minute. But I think these verses in John 14 certainly give us license to say obedience to the commands of Jesus is a sure sign and evidence of true saving faith. And the converse is true, right? Indifference to the commands of Jesus is a sure sign that one is not a true believer. I don't know when that became a controversial statement, uh, but, but, but you, you talk, uh, especially to young people today, but it's true of people of all ages, who, who will say very flippant things like, well, yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm not really going to be baptized. That's kind of odd. I love Jesus, but I'm not really going to join His church. Well, I love Jesus, but you know, what, what he says about sexual ethics, this is a different culture, different age. Um, 
Listen, if that's the posture, the attitude someone takes, uh, I would just assume they're not a Christian. You're just indifferent to the commands of Jesus. Okay, that's your right to have that perspective, but I just assume that you're not a Christian. Now, people will say, well, who are you to judge? Well, I'm not judging anybody. I'm just reading my Bible and deducing what is true, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is it then legitimate to say, if you keep the commandments, that's a sign, an indication of real love for Jesus? And moreover, if you're indifferent to those commandments, it's an indication you don't really love Jesus. Because in John 14, we read that the proper way of expressing love for Jesus is obedience to the commands. Now, on this point, just as an aside, uh, members of Emmanuel or those interested in joining Emmanuel, this is one of the reasons why in our, our little membership booklet, uh, we, we say there that if, if one is to join the church, um, we have a membership interview, and in that time, we, we say uh, we want to, to, to see uh, a profession of faith, re- repentance of sin, and faith in Jesus Christ. And then we include this clause, uh, evidence of a transformed life. Th- that idea is based very much on what we have in this passage that it's legitimate to look at the life lived as evidence of true saving faith. It's legitimate to look at one's attitude uh, toward the commands as evidence of real love and saving faith in Jesus. So that's one of the first ideas I think that's present here. But then here's what I think is the larger point that Jesus is making with this statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think Jesus is showing His disciples and thereby showing us the proper way of expressing love for Jesus. The proper way of expressing love for the Lord Jesus. Uh, How can you and I express our love for Christ? The answer is by obeying His commandments. There might be other ways, but one of the chief ways is by obeying His commandments. There's a famous Puritan saying, Uh, The law is love's eyes, and without the law, love is blind. How do I know how to express my love for Christ? Well, He's given me His law. He's given me His commandments. None of us has to be unclear about the will of the Lord Jesus. It's not a mystery. What, What Jesus wants for your life is clearly revealed in the Scriptures how He wants you to live and how He wants you to think and how He wants you to live out your life. It's all expressed in the Scriptures. He's laid out the blueprint for us on how to please Him. The law is love's eyes. Without the law, love is blind. Have you ever loved someone so much and and, and you've actually investigated ways to express that love? Again, marriage is just a, a fitting analogy. If you want to make your spouse happy, you think, well, what would make them happy? And uh, you, you think and you consider and you seek to do things and say things that you know especially will appeal to them and, and, and be a blessing to them and be an encouragement to them. Well, similarly, if we love the Lord Jesus, we are, as eager disciples, looking for opportunities to express that love to the Lord Jesus. And He has given us a blueprint for expressing that love, and that is in the commands itself. And let me just say, I think this is especially helpful, when there are commands that we have in Scripture that maybe we don't exactly understand, okay? Uh, um, I don't know exactly why the Lord has asked this of me. 
but I'm going to do it because it pleases Him. You might think of a small child, small child, uh, who, who, you know, all the toys are out in the living room, and you want to teach that child to pick up their toys. So what do you do? The child is holding the little ball, and here's the little basket to put the toy in, and you say, now, son, put the, put the toy in the basket. And he's never done this before. He looks at the toy, and he looks at you, he looks at the basket. Why do you want me to do that? Come on, so put it in the basket. You kind of guide his hand, and he puts it in the basket. And what does mom and dad do? <gasps> Yay! You made mom and dad so happy. And he looks at <laughs> And then he picks up another toy. He drops it in the bucket. Yay! You did it again. You made mom and dad so happy. He doesn't know why you're happy. He just knows that you're happy. This, this brings a smile to mom and dad's face. And then they do it and they do it again and again until their sinful recalcitrant hearts teach them that it's okay to rebel against mom and dad and then they never want to do it again. <laughs> Similarly, a lot of Christians struggle with understanding why the Lord is asking certain things of them. Let me use just in our day and age a very popular example. You are a man or a woman with homosexual urges. You feel an urge to relate in a physical way to someone of the same sex. And then you become a Christian, but the urge isn't completely gone. And you read in the Word of God that that sort of behavior is an abomination to God and that He has a different design for human sexuality. And for your part, you can't really understand why that's the case. Consenting adults? Uh, is this harming anybody? Now, why, why would the Lord want me to go against what feel to me as natural urges? And some people struggle with understanding that. Now, I think there's a very good rationale that can be laid out to such a person. But before I would ever lay out that rationale, I'd want to start here. The Lord Jesus has indicated His will for your life. And his promise is that it's good for you, that it's right, that it's holy, that it's honoring to God, and it's pleasing to Him. And regardless of whether we understand it or not, we have been told how we can please God. It is in every way appropriate, even if you don't quite understand the rationale, I'm going to do this because it pleases my Savior. I'm going to live in this way. I don't understand all the reasons why He's asked me to live this way or do this thing or not do that thing but I'm going to do this to please God. I'm going to live in this way because it honors my Savior. He has shown us the way by which we can express our love to Him. Not earn His love, but express our love. And it is through obedience to the commandments. Just a final thing I'll add before moving on to the third and final point. A legitimate question, I think, maybe this seems obvious, maybe not, what is actually meant by that word commandments? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does Jesus have in mind there? There's a sense in which that might seem very obvious. Uh, Forrest Gump, what is your sole purpose in this army? To do whatever you tell me to do, drill sergeant, right? 
We'll just do whatever Jesus has told you to do. What are the ethical commands Christ has given us? Good starting place is the Sermon on the Mount, and just do those things. Well, that's certainly true, okay? Certainly true. We should follow all the commands of Christ. But I think Jesus has a very specific idea in mind here that we understand as we read on in the Upper Room Discourse. I believe that more directly, Jesus has in mind the command to love one another. The command to love, I mean, it's a sense in which all of Jesus' commands are included here, but the special focus is on this command that we love one another. So we saw this in John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. New commandment, love one another. Dozen or so verses on, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Then as we go on into John 15, and you can just look over there on the next page, John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Then verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You're to keep my commandments. You want to know how that's summarized? To love one another. This is my commandment. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So there's a particular focus, particular focus on love for one another as the fulfillment of the commands of Jesus. And so I say again what I said maybe a month ago in the sermon on John 13, 34. How important is it to Christ that we love one another? In a sense, it fulfills all the commandments. Uh, it, is, it is the summary of Jesus' will for our lives that we engage in love for one another, and when we love one another, we express our love for Jesus. We express our delight, our satisfaction in Jesus when we fulfill His commands, and this commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So we've read in these verses, if you love me, that is to say you want me, prefer me, treasure me, adore me, keep my commandments. This is the way of expressing that love, obedience to the commandments, especially the command to love one another. Now consider with me thirdly and finally as we move to close. Consider the relationship between faith and love, the relationship between love and obedience. Thirdly and finally, the relationship between obedience and fellowship with God. The relationship between obedience and fellowship with God. Now in a sense, We'll probably spend the least amount of time on this, but this may be the most important idea in this passage. Look with me at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is or she it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does that mean? There are some commentators who think that might mean literally the Lord Jesus did what He did in history. He rose from the dead and manifested Himself to His disciples. Some believe it has to do with the second coming, that for all those who love His appearing, He will come, manifest Himself to them. I don't think that's at all what this is talking about. The context is communion with Christ and fellowship with Christ. The idea is that in the context of loving obedience to Christ, we will know and we will experience 
fuller manifestations of the Lord Jesus, fuller disclosures of His heart and His love for us. We will experience more intimate and deeper communion and fellowship with God. You realize this, right? Your new birth, your salvation in Christ can't fluctuate by degrees. You're saved or you're not, but your experience of intimacy and communion and fellowship with God can certainly fluctuate. Just think of David's statement. We sung it a moment ago in Psalm 51. He sinned so terribly against God and walked in disobedience to His commands. And what does he say in his famous psalm of repentance? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I want to experience again fellowship and intimacy and communion with my Redeemer. And I feel like I've lost it. I don't sense it the way I once did when I was walking in joyful obedience to the commands. As he says in another psalm, Psalm 32, commenting on the same ordeal, the same sin, he says, when I kept silent, when I was not repentant, in other words, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He wasn't experiencing fellowship with God as he was meant to. And why was that? Well, he wasn't walking in obedience to God. This is obvious, right? You have two children. One child is living in joyful, happy obedience to mom and dad, and one is living in rebellion. Well, the one who's living in rebellion is no less your child. You don't love them any less, but are you experiencing the same degree of intimacy and relationship and enjoying communion with them in the same way while they're walking in rebellion and disobedience? Well, similarly, this, this happens with us. If we love the Lord Jesus and keep His Word, He will come to us and manifest Himself to us. If you feel spiritually dry and you feel like you haven't been walking closely to Christ and you feel like you're not experiencing communion and fellowship with Him in the way that He intends for you, I'm commending to you the, the context for that experience. Love for the Lord Jesus, obedience to the Lord Jesus. When we walk in joyful, loving, affectionate obedience to the Savior, it's simply true that we experience the intimacy we're meant to experience with Him as He's outlined for us. You see this again in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Could there be any more beautiful image for fellowship with God than to have a home with him? This is not about the second coming. This is about present experience in the life of the believer. As you walk in joyful, loving relationship with God in obedience to His commands, you experience fellowship and intimacy with Him. Jesus is not here talking about the new birth, but rather talking about communion with God. And what we learn here is that love and obedience to Christ is the God-ordained context for the fullest manifestations of communion with Christ. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close. It's wonderful to reflect back on the new birth. It's wonderful to reflect back on our conversion, and we should do it again and again and again and again, every day, every week of our lives. But don't miss out on the present experience that is intended for every believer. The experience of intimacy with Christ, 
actual fellowship and communion with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're meant to live in relationship with Him. And He tells us the proper context for that is loving obedience to His commands. Not to earn His love, but to experience it in a fuller degree. The last thing I'll say, and then we'll be done, is that you may find in your own heart an inability to obey the commands of Jesus. As you think about Christ's commandments and His law, you may find within yourself an inability to obey His commands. And the truth is, unless you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God and been born again and been made a new creature, you cannot obey God's commands. But the wonder of the gospel is is, is that through saving faith in Jesus Christ, He is willing to come to you and not only forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, but He is delighted to change you and to make you new. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so I tell you, you you can know this experience of living in loving relationship and intimacy and communion with the very God who created you through Jesus Christ. That's offered freely to everyone who will come to God through the way that He has made in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sent His Son into the world so that sinners like us can enter into communion with God, relationship with God, to experience affection and intimacy and love with God. That's held out to everyone in the gospel. Let's pray together.